Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Labour has never done well in a UK election without doing really well in Scotland. We need deposit ATMs and we need withdrawal ATMs and we need a law that means that businesses have to accept cash. UK workers have had the most bargaining power essentially since the 1970s because the jobs market is so tight. Can Britain actually afford to maintain a global military presence? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. I'm never happier than when we can combine discussing food with discussing politics. And I do have to say I am loving this run of metaphors trying to describe Labour's efforts to woo the business community. First of all, there was the prong cocktail offensive led by then Shadow Business Secretary Mo Molum, actually, in the run to the 1997 general election, seen as being very key to winning over that key constituency. For and not forgetting uh, Michael Heseltine's famous joke, of course, never have so many crustaceans died in vain. Indeed, yeah, always a good chance to bring that up as well. Then we were talking about Labour this time around, having the smoked salmon and scrambled eggs offensive. And in fact, some reporting in the Times today, taking that even a little bit further, talking about uh, a meeting that was happening in the offices of UK Finance, where it was uh, the Labour, ca- the lobster canapé, the Labour lobster canapé engagement. It all smells very fishy to me. But what it reflects is that late Keir Starmer has been trying to woo the city, woo business. And in fact, it's working. Our latest MLive Pulse survey here at Bloomberg asked finance professionals about their opinion of the UK political leaders and two in three of them reckon that Starmer would be better for the pound and better for the FTSE than Rishi Sunak. So on the one hand it shows just how much reputational damage Liz Truss and Boris Johnson did to the Conservative Party. More on her later. Yeah more on her later but at the same time I think we have to take our hats off to Keir Starmer. Just remember how much he had to turn around that reputation of the Labour Party because the city seemed pretty allergic to Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, very much so. I think it probably should be pointed out that the MLive poll survey is is self-selecting, so this isn't scientific, but still, these are very impressive numbers, aren't they, for Labour? And they'll be pleased that perhaps there's investment in, uh, I mean, lobster's not cheap, is it? Investment in lobster (laughs) is clearly working out for uh, the Labour Party. As you say, it was a lot to turn around. I do think there will be an element in here of uh, the city realising that they may well have to work with the Labour government. If the polls are correct, then there's not much chance of uh, working with uh, the current administration after the next election. So they're going to have to deal with it come what may. So I think that's also a bit of a factor. Well, it brings us back to our conversation on Friday, doesn't it, with the CEO of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, this sense of the inevitability that in 15 months, however long it's going to be, when there's an election, Labour, they reckon, are going to win. And so that's what businesses in the North are assuming and planning for. Yeah, and I mean... Yeah, and it's not, it's not just actually in the city. Rachel Rees, of course, has met uh, chief execs up and down the country. She's met 380 so far with her uh, smoked salmon and scrambled egg offensive. Does anyone over- really want to be served smoked salmon and scrambled eggs at a meeting? 
Well, I like smoked scum and scrambled eggs. It doesn't make but, a great canopy, though, Yes, yeah, you can't kind of, like, casually eat it while hobnobbing with the great and good of uh, UK think, business. I think the issue with scrambled eggs is not that they're not <laughs> delicious, because I think they are. I think the issue is that they go cold, and then they're not that good. Eek. But I also think the wider issue is... Thank you, Lizzie. ...that the government <laughs> has had to fight fire after fire, and though... Ministers don't want to admit it. What I hear behind the scenes is that they're quite frustrated. They just don't have the time for the engagement that Labour is managing to do with business. Yeah, well, look, Keir Starmer also getting a lot of attention for the interviews that he was doing over the weekend, too, notably with the Financial Times, where he talked about his ambitions for a major rewrite of Britain's post-Brexit trade deal. Uh, This, as there's a review expected of this already in 2025, that was written into the Trade and Cooperation Agreement when it was signed under uh, Boris Johnson as well. Uh, But Keir Starmer giving some detail, talking about it being an important moment to reset relations, him talking about wanting to do things like uh, get an agreement on veterinary issues with the EU which would help to facilitate border to, fewer border checks rather on animals and food issues as well looking for recognition of professional qualifications so we're getting a little bit better of an idea of how Keir Starmer wants to approach relations with the EU even if that he has ruled out uh, rejoining the EU rejoining the customs union or the single market as well yeah, he's also talked about closer cooperation areas like security, innovation and research. But I think that the, the, the tricky question here is whether the EU wants to uh, to renegotiate this in a major way. And it seems that they, they seem unlikely to. Many in Brussels see the review as just a tidying up exercise. And if Starmer wants to do some major stuff, then I don't think there's a lot of appetite amongst uh, European leaders for that. So I think that's going to be a bit of an issue when 2025 comes around. Well, I have to say, I wondered when I read this whether or not Keir Starmer may have heard our interview with Michel Barnier a couple of months ago. The former, uh, of course, EU Brexit negotiator was talking to us about this and we actually put the question to Michel Barnier as to what this review would entail and whether it could mean big changes to that trade and cooperation agreement. Take a listen. Review does not mean change. One point cannot be changed, the reality of the single market, the rules, the norms, the conditions to be part or to, to have a relation with the single market uh, will not change. And as I said, uh, all along the negotiation, under the name of the 27 member states, the parliament, uh, it was my mandate, we could not accept and we cannot accept and we will not accept any kind of unravelling uh, or cherry-picking single market. So the, the UK knows perfectly what, what is the rules. And Brexit means Brexit, so we can, can be in and out at the same time. Would a Labour government be able to reset relations with the European Union? Do you think the relationship would look very different under a different party's leadership? Whatever the government, the UK government, will be the next few months or few years, the, the, the door is open. We are ready to, to, to discuss. We are ready to improve our relations, in particular in a very strategic field and issue where Johnson refused to open a negotiation about security, defense, uh, cooperation in Africa. We are ready to improve uh, and to, to rebuild a good cooperation. But as far as trade is concerned, the deal has been done uh, and it will not change. We can improve it. And let me just take one specific example about veterinary uh, relations to, to, to facilitate the relation be- between the UK and EU. But in the substance of the trade agreement, there will be no change. So that was Michel Barnier, the 
EU's former chief Brexit negotiator speaking to us here on the UK Politics podcast a couple of uh, months ago now. So essentially outlining all of the things that Keir Starmer brought up in his interviews being potential areas of cooperation. But Michel Barnier being quite clear that this is uh, a review does not mean necessarily that there will be big changes made to the agreement. And in fact, I'm saying a couple of times there that, you know, the, the agreement is not open for renegotiation. And they're particularly sensitive, as had been a continual issue through the negotiations too, about this idea of any cherry picking entrance to the single market as well. Uh, we can imagine that Keir Starmer might perhaps bring up some of these issues as well when he meets the French president tomorrow, um, which is seen as being quite an interesting meeting uh, of leaders ahead of, um, of course, the, the election we're expecting in just over a year's time. So there was all that about Starmer's position on the EU, but we've also heard a bit more about his position on taxes. He refused to guarantee that there won't be tax rises for the rich if Labour comes to power. He said that he wants the tax burden to come down for working people. So it leaves a big question mark and it seems to contradict what the Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves has been saying. She says Labour wouldn't raise capital gains tax or introduce a mansion tax. She said that Labour doesn't plan to raise the top rate of tax, which Starmer had pledged back in 2020. Starmer was talking about how what he wants to do is grow the economy so that it fixes the fiscal issue that the UK finds itself in. But to me, that sounded a lot like Jeremy Hunt when he was in New Delhi at the G20 speaking to Bloomberg's Heslinder Amin. Everybody wants to grow the economy. We're going to talk about Liz Truss later. Liz Truss wants to grow the economy, but what do you do if you can't manage that? And it seems that Starmer was forced to admit he would fall back to tax rises. It does feel a bit like we're getting into the the kind of guess who stage of tax policy where it's like, no, no, no capital gains tax, no mansion tax, no increase the 45% uh, rate of taxation either. And I mean, this is essentially going to be the, the subject of every major economic interview that, that Keir Starmer does see now in the election because it is going to be a case that people are literally going to be going down the list saying, well, if you want to improve public services, if you want to spend more, there you know, there doesn't appear to be any magic money pot that you're going to be able to delve into. So how are you going to pay for it? And that he's going to come under an awful lot of pressure and there'll, there'll be a lot of this guess whoing, if I'm to make that into a verb, uh, of where tax policy goes from here. Yeah, I mean, one question that I've been having with a few people is, and these are business veterans is what happens if um, changing the non-DOM rules doesn't work in your favour and actually you get less money? Does Labour drop that policy uh, or does it stick with it because they think it's ideologically right? The other uh, sceptical, cynical view of former Tory chancellors is that they scrap the non-DOM stuff but then they bring it back under another name uh, because the Treasury needs it. Yeah, it's interesting that because that's one of the key, that's one of the few firm pledges we've had from Labour on taxes, the non-dom thing. But as you say, it's a little bit uncertain how much that will raise and whether the non-doms will disappear, which is what the other side of the argument say. But interesting that uh, Keir Starmer seems to be rowing back a little bit on these wealth tax uh, wealth taxes because those are one of the few uh, fertile areas where uh, Labour could perhaps try and get some money from wealthier voters, and they've been clear they don't want to raise taxes on ordinary. Uh, working folk. Uh, so capital gains tax, you would think, would be ripe for a change. Many on the left and Labour Party would like to see capital gains tax uh, equalised with income tax. It's currently 28%. But that is something which Rachel Reeves had previously said 
uh, Labour wouldn't do. So I think interesting to watch that as Labour starts to pick its way around the public finances and see if there's anywhere they can squeeze a bit more tax uh, out of the wealthy. And if you, I mean, if you want to get really nerdy about it, it does bring us back to our conversation with Michael Saunders as well, the former BOE policymaker, talking about the, ne- the need to change the fiscal rules because actually everyone's doing a bit of fiscal alchemy with the rules to say that you know if they're trying to project that they're going to have the deficit below a certain level and debt levels coming down within five years, then every year is just sort of a reshuffling of how the maths are going to work to be able to get to that position of downward trajectory by the end of five years. And that's obviously not something we're going to hear much uh, talk about necessarily before the election, but it is something that's going to be in the back of minds. I think that's an important point, actually, because, of course, remember these these fiscal rules do change over time, and they've changed quite a few times over the last 15 or 20 years. So the idea that these are set in stone is really not correct. So I think Labour will be, Rachel Reeves will be looking over these fiscal rules and seeing uh, if she can tweak them a little bit so that there is more money to be had because they are not absolutely fixed. If you're listening, Michael Saunders, Stephen doesn't really think you're a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) That was the policy. It was the policy. I love a bit of detail, uh, as we always do. It's almost exactly a year since Liz Truss and Quasi Quarteng's ill-fated so-called mini-budget, which turned out to be anything but mini, causing markets to tank and investors to recoil. Well, the former PM is on the offensive today, making a speech blaming the UK's anemic growth on too much economic consensus. She also says she would have spent £36 billion less during the current parliament than her successor, Rishi Sunak. Well, our chief speech watcher and Bloomberg's UK politics editor, Kitty Donaldson, is uh, joining us now from just, uh, just outside where Liz Truss has been taking questions. Uh, Kitty, how did it go? Well, uh, it was a divided audience. There was sort of slightly aggressive hacks um, um, journalists and then there was a bunch of Liz Truss's supporters in here as well. So Lord David Frost, who was uh, one of the Brexit negotiators and Nigel Farage was here. And, uh, and uh, so she, it was, a, it, was a, it was a room of two halves, let's put it that way. It seems quite brave, actually, of Liz Truss, because, correct me if I'm wrong, Kitty, but so far it seems she's only been giving interviews to friendly outlets like The Spectator. What do you read into her broadening the uh, horizon to include the Institute for Government? I think that's absolutely right, um, Lizzie. She, she hasn't done uh, any, any sort of proper sit-down interviews. And, and to be fair to her, actually, she took a lot of questions, and quite a lot of them were hostile. In fact, I asked when I asked her if... Um, you know, why she was pointing the blame at everyone else. I got booed by the supporters. So, you know, that's a good start to the week. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's always nice to have a bit of, bit of atmosphere at these yeah. events, potentially. <laughs> uh, what was it? I mean, what was she defensive about her policies? What, did she, what sort of elements of her policies from what, that time when she was prime minister, did she cling on to and I suppose continue to support? The central theme of her argument is that it wasn't her disastrous mini-budget that was to blame. It was the institutions in the UK that are to blame for a certain kind of groupthink and that don't allow for um, low taxes and high growth. So, for instance, she hit out at the Bank of England. She was very rude about them. She hit out at the Office of Budget Responsibility, extremely rude about them. Um, She even sort of said she didn't... If she thought about how fragile the bond market was at the time, she wouldn't have done it. than what she did, and this sort of this phrase she kept coming back to—the sort of dinner party elite of people who, um, who who decide a policy and then you know don't don't take um, 
don't take orders from democratically elected politicians. So she was very rude about all of that. And, and, and in reply to my question, I said, come on, you know, mortgage rates gone up as a result of your mini, mini budget. She said, well, mortgage rates were going up anyway. And she said, oh, I don't regret what I did, but we did, we, you know, basically we went about it in the wrong way, which is effectively what she's been saying all along. So there's no, there's no sense of kind of humility or apology or anything like that here. Yeah, Kitty, it sounds like she hasn't really changed her position as much because she was blaming the Bank of England and the OBR back at the time. And that was one of the things which people said caused the mess in the first place. So, did you get any sense that she'd sort of changed her mind on anything in the last 12 months? No, absolutely not. It's just, it's just kind of, it's actually quite astonishing sitting here thinking, you know, we've had a year and there's a sort of period, she's had a period of reflection and she's sort of been this kind of slightly lonely figure on the on the outside of the party. And here she is sort of acting now as a kind of convener of, of right-wing thinking. Um, she couldn't bring herself to praise Rishi Sunak. And um, and actually, uh, a colleague from another news organisation asked if the, if the Tories should spend a period of time in opposition to debate these issues. And she didn't quite say, oh, you know, we need, we need Labour to win. In fact, she was quite rude about the Labour Party. But equally, there was no no sense that that anything had got through to her that that she was to blame, and I just she's 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 very um, sort of blinkered, I suppose, and 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 see things one way and won't be persuaded otherwise. It seems like there aren't many people she wasn't rude about. I wonder, Kitty, though, on a positive note, if there were any yeah. clues about what she's going to do in the future. We know she's got a book coming out in April. Do you think maybe she yeah. fancies herself to lead a think tank like uh, on the on the right? She will. Uh, yes, she's got a book coming out, and it's sort of every other answer to every question was like, "You can read about this in my book." Um, so I think it's going to be pretty, you know, pretty explosive when it comes out next year. Um, she's also coming to Tory conference, where no doubt she will cause a few fireworks in some fringe meetings. Uh, I don't know what next. She's not stepping down at the election, I think, so she'll carry on being a Tory MP. And I suspect after the election, when, as we expect, Labour win, um, she'll be one of the major figures standing up and saying, no, this is the direction the party should take. And, and, and that was evidenced by who was here backing her, you know, Lord Frost is... He's got his, um, he's got irons in the fire, and and he wants to contribute to the debate after the election too. Do you think Rishi Sunak uh, would be disturbed by anything that Liz Truss had to say, or do you think, if I was to put it flippantly, he might be just rolling his eyes? I mean, uh, no, he doesn't need to worry. He, you know, I mean, the only the only way that he he needs to worry, in a sense, is that is how much of his party agree with the sentiments she's expressing and there is a tranche of the party who who do think along similar lines but i don't think trust herself as any particular threat no um, are you surprised that she's staying on as an mp i mean it's 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 not unheard of but it is it's fairly unusual isn't it for party leaders to to stand to election again after they've they've stood down well, Theresa May did of course you're right mostly people kind of go on to do bigger and better things and uh, well, at least you know, earn more money. But um, she she seems to be keen to keep on the the path she's on at the moment. So we wait and see. I mean, perhaps we'll find she stands down closer to the election. But at the moment, there's no sign of it. All right, Kitty Donaldson, Bloomberg's UK politics editor, our chief speech watcher, who's been listening to Liz Truss at the Institute for Government. Thank you. Now, turn to something that we don't talk about very often on this program: fashion. 
perhaps we should a little bit more. But it is London Fashion Week and these are the sorts of businesses that we know that politicians are very keen to promote. High value businesses in the UK think of the likes of Burberry. The issue though of tax-free shopping is something that these companies have been extremely vocal about. It's something that ended uh, in 2021 which means that shoppers who are out from outside the EU who've come to shop in the UK aren't able to claim back their tax on purchases. Something that they can do in many continental European countries. The CEO of Burberry, Jonathan Ackroyd, speaking to Bloomberg, said the policy is creating a gap in tourist spending in the UK versus continental Europe. Well, joining us now to discuss is Helen Brocklebank, who's chief executive of Walpole, the company, the organisation which represents more than 250 uh, British luxury companies. Helen, great to have you with us on the programme. How big a problem is this issue of the lack of tax-free shopping in the UK? It's a problem that those uh, 250 incredible British brands are feeling very, very keenly. It's asking innovative, creative businesses that are private a country to compete with the European giants with both hands behind their back. One of the things that we discovered when we polled our members quite recently to ask about the impact of, uh, of what's being called the tourist tax, more than two-thirds reported a worse-than-expected first half, and all of those who attributed the down, attributed all of the, all of whom attributed the downturn to the absence of tax-free shopping. Helen, which tourists are we talking about in particular? Where are they coming from, and and where are they spending their money elsewhere? So they primarily uh, tourists from the US, from the Middle East, and to an, and to an extent from uh, countries in Asia, Korea, Japan, starting to be China as well. And the where they're going is Paris instead. So spending by visitors to the UK from the USA is back at 100% of 2019, which sounds great until you realise that in France, they're at 226% of what they were in 2019. And spenders from the Middle East to the UK in 2022, it was at only 65% of 2019 levels. But actually in France, it's at 198%. And France was never the number one destination for spending for GCC visitors. So it's really skewing the picture. Is there a danger, Helen, that this isn't just a tax issue? Of course, Brexit's made logistics hairier and more expensive. Model visas are a problem. You mentioned about Paris kind of doing better than London, but we're having London Fashion Week. Is there a sense that London's day might be done? I mean, London is still is still an extraordinarily uh, buoyant and brilliant uh, capital. In you know, it's I mean, we for particularly for high spending international visitors. Uh, I mean, certainly the, in 2019 we had 21 percent of the high end visitor market, which was actually a long you know a long way ahead of Paris and Milan. Say, it's just that post pandemic they're not coming back and spending at the same levels. They're here. So the challenge is, is not Brexit, it's not COVID, it's that our country is looking a little bit less attractive. Now, we should be able to compete on a level playing field uh, with continental Europe, and we're just not able to do so. It's putting people off. That is not what we should be doing. Helen, we, when we spoke to Jonathan Ackroyd, he said that you know they were talking to government about this. What's been your engagement with government on this issue, and are they are they attentive and aware of what difficulties it's presenting for the brands that you represent? So we've been we've been talking to government for three years now 
and presenting more and more evidence. I think they are in listening mode. So government uh, departments, particularly the Department of Trade, who understand how crucial this is for export and also for for those uh, in high-spending international visitors that uh, come to the UK, not just for leisure, but also for, uh, for business, they do understand the impact. Uh, but, but Treasury, uh, I think, needs to come to the table and have, and have proper discussions about this. Helen, if the economics of this are so clear-cut, why do you think the government is persisting with its position? I think that's, I think that's really, really hard to say. We would, we would argue that we have presented the data that they've asked for that clearly, clearly says that uh, actually uh, you would get... The, sorry, the additional revenues generated by the restitution of the scheme would outweigh the losses Treasury associates with tax-free refunds by £2.3 billion. Now, that's a study that happened very recently by the Centre of Economics and Business Research. Uh, there's another study that happened last year uh, that said that international business spending generated by tax-free shopping would support £4.2 billion of GDP annually, and it would sustain 78,000 jobs. Now, we think these are really compelling figures, and yet the Treasury continues to... Uh, give us a line that they gave us three years ago, uh, despite, despite the fact that we have presented very, very compelling data. So, Helen, Bloomberg had a survey today of finance professionals, and it showed that majority of them thought Keir Starmer would be better for the pound and for the FTSE than Rishi Sunak. Do you think that he'd be better for the luxury sector? I think until we, until we hear the uh, part of uh, policies and the campaigning points at the party elections in next month from both parties, it's very, very difficult for any business to say. Okay, Helen, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. That's Helen Brocklebank there, Chief Executive of Walpole, representing those 250 British luxury uh, brands. Uh, Helen zipping between locations there in central London for Fashion Week. So I appreciate able to get her time off for us on the programme. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Our audio engineer today was Marufal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.